0: Open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. It might seem strange to you that our text is found in Judges, chapter 6, because we are continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah. But there were two issues that came up last Sunday, and I want to visit them again, and perhaps give a bit more detail. The first was the issue of casting lots. There was a problem in Nehemiah's time. They had finished rebuilding the wall, putting in the gates, the doors, and everything. But there weren't enough people living in Jerusalem. There were very few people living there. So in order to repopulate the city of Jerusalem through a system that is not specified, we're simply told that they cast lots to bring one out of every ten to come and live in the city. As I mentioned last week, the idea of casting lots is found throughout the Old Testament. We see it on the Day of Atonement, where two goats are brought, one is to be sacrificed, and then one is to carry the sins of the people into the desert. Well, which is which? Well, they cast lots to determine which one will be sacrificed and which one will be let go in the desert. And then the Promised Land. You have the twelve tribes that are going in. Who gets what? Well, this is also determined by casting lots. Once they get into the Promised Land, you have the famous story of Achan after Jericho fell Uh, They went to Ai and they figured this is a piece of cake. We don't even need to send a lot of guys because look what we did to Jericho. But they were defeated and they found out that there was sin in the camp. But who sinned? And so uh, God says in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. And this is how Achan is discovered to be the man who broke God's command with regard to Jericho. And then in the New Testament, um, after the ascension, they're in the upper room, the 120 of them, and they must choose someone to take the place of Judas. Uh, because now there are just 11 of them, and you might be like, well, what's the big deal? Well, 12 is the number of Israel. And Jesus had come to do what Israel had failed to do. So, this is what Peter tells them. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven apostles. And here, I think, in this last mention of the casting of lots, we now get a sense of what it's all about. It is that God knows And they're asking that God, in fact, would reveal what it is they should do. There's a prayerful attitude. There is prayer, in fact. There is a sense of humility and submission to whatever it is that God wants. You know, it's not like it falls to Matthias and they're like, no, let's do two out of three. You know, there's, this is what God has chosen. This is the person. As I mentioned last week, this this sort of bothers me. It sounds uh, foreign. It smacks of random chance. Um, and talking today, last week, talking about probability and the risk factor and all these various things. Um, it, it almost sounds like gambling. It's, you know, rolling the dice to discover what it is that God wants us to do. I would argue that in casting lots and in gambling, there is both this sense that you don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's why you cast the lots roll the dice or whatever it is that you do to find out the result. But in casting the lots, there is a sense that God knows what the result should be, what the outcome should be. It is because of this that I wanted to look for us to look at Judges chapter 6. It's the story of Gideon. And just to give a brief overview, um, we find the pattern in the book of Judges that I mentioned the other week um, and Robert and I were talking about it relapse ruin repentance restoration and rest by the way this is not original with I don't do alliteration somebody else did but this is an easy way to remember it and so Judges chapter 6 opens with again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites so here you have the relapse once again They go into worshipping false gods. And so they are in ruin. They came up with their livestock. Actually, let me go back. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and the other eastern peoples invaded. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. At a certain point, Israel begins to think about repenting. In verse number 7, the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian. And the process of restoration begins. A prophet is sent to give them a word. But then also an angel appears to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord has chosen a deliverer. Someone who, in fact, will deliver Israel out of the hands of the Midianites and the Amalekites. But like others that are chosen by God, Gideon tries to beg off. Verse 14 the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. So it sounds very much like Moses at the burning bush and Saul when he was uh, chosen to be the first king. He's like, I'm from the smallest tribe. You know, it's Benjamin. Why should I be king? Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Now, this is what most people associate with Gideon, that is a sign. But this is not the sign that most people know about. If you read the chapter carefully, uh, well, verse 18, please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon goes and prepares an offering to worship God. The sign that he wants is, will I be allowed to worship God? And in fact, that is given to him. Look at verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the ashra pole you, that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So along with 10 servants, Gideon does as the Lord told him, but he does it at night because he's afraid of the people. And when the people wake up the next morning and they see what Gideon has done, that he's taken uh, this, this second bull, which in fact represents Baal or Baal and the ashra pole, Um, And he's used them as a sacrifice to God. Um, Bring out your son. He must die, they say to Joash, Gideon's father. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Verse 31. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by mourning. If Baal is really a god or really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal or Jerob Baal, saying "Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. After this, the Amalekites, and Midianites and the other eastern people's Jordan forces, they come across the Jordan River into Canaan. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to join or to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet with them. This is the northern part of Israel, the northern tribes. Now we come to the part of the story that most people associate with Gideon. Verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out of the dew, or wrung out the dew a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, for many Christians, this has come to symbolize trying to discern what God's will is. That this is a method for discerning the will of God. Yeah, no, that's what's going on here. And people, I think, missed what's going on. What was happening is a distinction was being clear, made clear to Gideon between God and Baal. Between God and Baal. We need to be very clear about this, that the religion of scripture holds to a view that ascribes all events to personal actions on the part of personal accountable agents. And this begins with creation. As one writer put it, God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous laws of nature. The universe is not a giant mechanism like a clock which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. I think the problem is because God is consistent, people begin to see patterns, and then they begin to discover principles, and then they write down laws to say, these are the laws of nature. This is the way things are supposed to be. And interestingly enough, they then turn it on God and say, you have to follow these laws as though God himself were subject to some set of laws. The reality is that the universe is inescapably personal. There is no phenomenon or event in the creation that is independent from God. This is known as cosmic personalism. We sang about it today in our second hymn, The Moon Shines Full at His Command. Now, if you were to ask people who know about such things, they'd say, well, no, no, actually, it's because the moon goes around the earth and the sun and all these things, and that's why you have a full moon. That is a view of the universe that is quite impersonal. But as God's people, we should see the world as being marked by cosmic personalism. Again, one writer puts, cosmic personalism affirms that all things have their being and meaning in terms of the person and plan of God. It absolutely denies the possibility of autonomy, self-sufficiency for any aspect of the universe. All the creation is subordinate to God. The eternally active triune God brings all things to pass through his eternal activity, not through the establishment of impersonal forces or processes. Baalism, on the other hand, is a religion or philosophy that ascribes all events to impersonal processes on the part of impersonal forces, which may be mythologized as gods or goddesses. So back in the ancient time, it's, it's about process, but they somehow personify, they, they say, oh, that's the god, or this is the goddess, the Asherah pole, or Baal himself. One could argue that the choice we have as God's people is between cosmic personalism and cosmic impersonalism, between the personalism and process. It's either a person or it's a process. Baalism still exists today, and I would say that it is the majority of you on this planet today. We don't have the gods and the goddesses to go with it, but rather we focus on processes. Has been argued that one of the consequences of Baalism is that there's a banishing of personal responsibility because the world is impersonal. It's a process. And so the idea of guilt, of having done something or being responsible, goes out the window. It allows us to ignore any type of ethical standards. To say, well, that's just something that you developed over time, something that you constructed. Um, yeah, that's not really how the world works. We get to do whatever it is that we want. Gideon had probably been raised in Baalism, because Israel had turned away from God. His dad, in fact, had set up an altar, and Asherah pole to Baal. But I would argue that Gideon also believed in God. In other words, it's like the golden calf. They put God's name on the golden calf. So it's a mixture between, oh yes, we believe God created the world, But then we believe that nature, or Baal, runs the system. God created it, and Baal, or the processes, is what keeps things going. What Gideon asked for with regard to the fleece, within the Baal system, or the Baalism, is not possible. It is not simply possible. Because in a system of processes, you can't have miracles. Because with the process, it just goes along. You you can't have a, a disruption of the process. For us as God's people, we do believe in miracles. And our view is not that God is subject to laws and then he changes his mind all of a sudden. It is that God is always working. He is always active. And he is generally consistent with what he does. But a miracle is when God does something differently than what he normally does. And we can pray to God and say, will you deliver in a miraculous way this individual or this family whatever? And because God is always at work, yes, he, I, he absolutely can do that. God does not set aside the laws of nature. It's not as though he comes in and sort of taps on nature's shoulder and says, listen, we need, we need to change something here for a minute for this particular case. God is always at work. It's cosmic personalism. He is the eternally active God. Now, some people in modern Baalism, which again, I think most people hold to, uh, gets around the whole business of miracles by believing in chance. So you have processes, but every once in a while you just have this fluky thing that they would call chance. And then somebody who had brain cancer suddenly doesn't have brain cancer. And it's not God intervening, it's just sort of a a fluky chance thing that might happen. And thereby you, you can acknowledge the reality of miracles. So in the modern view, impersonal process plus impersonal chance equals the way things are. That's just the way things are. We live in a world that's like a clock, a mechanism, and we just sort of go along because that's the way the rules are. The events that are described here in Judges 6 are radically different from that. There are two different signs, a wet fleece and dry ground. But perhaps Gideon thought, well, maybe the fleece absorbed all of it from the ground. So there's a second one, and that is a dry fleece and wet ground. I think the second sign is almost more miraculous, because the first one I think we could say, well, yeah, it just sort of absorbed the dew from the ground. But how do you explain the second one? You'll notice that God doesn't judge or criticize Gideon for asking for the second side, or even for the first one, for that matter. He grants the miracle. Why? Because he is not Baal. God is not limited as Baal is. Baal is simply a matter of processes. God is personal and active. As I said, God does not judge or criticize or rebuke Gideon for asking for a sign, but he graciously gives him the signs he requested. By the way, parenthetically, some of you may be thinking, what about 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah challenged the priests of Baal and they built these altars and who's going to call down fire from heaven? And we read that, I think, wrongly because we believe in a personal God Somehow we see Baal as personal as well. So it's a question of which personal God is going to answer. And that's actually not what's going on, even as Elijah ridicules them about their God. What we see is that the priests of Baal are trying to stimulate, they're trying to get a process going whereby they can get the thing that they require. And then you have this wonderfully amazing and short prayer from Elijah And God sends down fire from heaven. The priests of Baal did not believe in a miracle. They don't believe in miracles. They're trying to stimulate the process. Whereby they can get what it is that they want. The miraculous sign that God gave Gideon was in fact to help him believe. In our time, I think people may look for miracles, but have less than a confident faith that God can do this. Our modern view, I think in many ways, we are like Gideon, that we are sort of this mixture. Yes, we believe God created the world, but then we believe in natural law, and all these things are going along. And so when it comes to asking God to intervene, we're like, wow, that's, well that's asking a lot. Well if you believe that God has always been at work all the time, then to ask God to do something, well, he's always been doing something. You're simply asking him to do something different than what he normally does. I think we fail to realize in our day-to-day lives, you know, it's just as easy for God to get your car to run as it is for him to let your car run down. But which of us thinks of God when we think of our cars, when we get into our cars? You put the key and you turn it. It's got gas. If you don't have gas, it's not going to start. The batteries run down, it's not going to start. We don't have any idea that God is involved in this. I think we should, in fact, be looking all the time to the eternally active God. And I think our dependence on him would increase, not decrease, if we came to see this. I mentioned a few moments ago that the choice is between cosmic personalism and cosmic impersonalism. That's actually not true, because cosmic impersonalism is a myth. It is a myth. Okay? It's a question of, will we follow God, or will we follow Satan? We, we would prefer to think it's personal or it's not personal. But in fact, the universe, all of it is personal. Well, I think we would reject this idea, many people would, because we don't see things as personal as we should. We're quite content to think in terms of process and laws and principles. Right. To see things as either from God or from Satan is like too black and white. It's too binary. Because like, isn't there this big middle ground in between for things like technology? That aren't either divine or anti-God? We need to recognize that God is always at work. In John 5.17, after healing on the Sabbath, Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. God is always working. Gideon had been raised in a corrupt system. So he put out the fleece, not once, but twice. And if the personal God does, in fact, rule the universe, if he, in fact, runs the universe, and it's not simply process, then God can do what Gideon asked. And that's precisely what happens. So that's the first thing from last week. The second is dedicating things to God. Last week we looked at the dedicating of the wall of Jerusalem. And while some might question the whole business of casting lots, for me it's more the dedicating of the wall. Uh, Because in the Old Testament to dedicate means to sanctify something, to set it apart, to consecrate it, to say this is God's. And in our study in Ezra and Nehemiah we saw that they dedicated the temple That seems appropriate because in other places they dedicate the altar and the instruments that are used in worship. Uh, But here they're going to dedicate the wall. And a wall doesn't seem particularly religious or spiritual or something important to God. The temple, that's something else. altar. But as I mentioned last week, In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we have rules about when they go to war. And in verse 5, the officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. And here, I think in this one verse, we begin, hopefully, to see the truth of things. That God is the owner of all things because he is the creator. He sustains the universe Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. By the way, we hear very similar words from Moses in Deuteronomy 10. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. To dedicate something or someone to God is based on the recognition that that something or someone already belongs to God. It's not as though this is mine and I sort of want to protect it so I want God to like, bless it or something. It is God's already. And the dedicating of the wall, I think, recognizes that fact. When we dedicate something, we recognize that what we have is not ownership but stewardship. All things belong to God. We don't own anything. It's all God's. Okay. He has lent it to us. We are to be stewards of it. And therefore, to dedicate it is to say, I recognize that this belongs to God. And I am looking to him for wisdom, for direction. I want to do the right thing. And I want that he would protect what he has committed to our care. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? For some reason, we seem to think that what we have is ours and we may choose generously in our way of thinking to maybe give something to God or to dedicate something to God or to give to others. So, for example, those who believe in tithing, they would say 10% belongs to God and the 90% belongs to me. It's mine. And I would say, no, tithing is a recognition that all of it belongs to God. Malachi 3, eight: will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. And again, people might read this and say, see, the tithe is God's and the rest is yours. And if you keep the 10%, you're robbing God. No, the reality is it is all God's. And tithing is saying it's all from God. And I'm acknowledging that by returning to him 10% of what he's given me. I think that giving a tithe is recognizing that God owns all things. See, I think you you could even give half of what you have. Give half of what you earn to God. But if you think the other half is yours, you've missed the boat. It's all God's. It's all God's. And dedicating tithing, whatever it is is a way of saying it all belongs to God dedication, I think, is a wonderful reminder of all that we have been given that all we have is gift from God that all things belong to God so in both the casting of lots and dedicating, there are dangers that surround us. Things that we need to be aware of. Some are more obvious than others. I think the more obvious is a belief in process over the personal and a sense of ownership rather than of stewardship. I think these are these are obvious dangers. But there are some that are less obvious. These are ancient heresies that now go by different names, but Manicunism and Neoplatonism, the idea that somehow the world creation is innately sinful. In fact, some would say that God did not create the world at all, that some other God did. And so the physical, the material, is inferior to the spirit. So that this, the body, is nothing, and what's in your heart, your spirit, your soul, is what's important. This is wrong. There are false views because the Bible tells us that God created the world and he saw that it was good. Manichaeanism and Neoplatonism will not allow that God owns all things. How can God own that which is sinful and inferior? They would say no. The reality is the earth and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Beyond this, the doctrine of creation in its biblical form denies one of the most cherished doctrines of the modern world, the doctrine of cosmic impersonalism. That it's all about principles and processes and laws and not about a personal God. Now, if we're not careful... Everything that we've talked about up to this point will become or be seen primarily or exclusively as theoretical and not personal. And we've been talking about cosmic personalism. It would be ironic if here at the end we have a very impersonal view of truth. We see truth as theory, as, as principle, rather than something that is alive. Paul wrote to the Colossians, he, that is the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God pleased to have his all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Then the book of Hebrews, it opens with these words. This is the letter to, to the Jews of the first century, and and how do you get started? It is the Lord Jesus, the person of Jesus, that personally is at work. It is the person of the Father and of the Spirit that are at work. This is not an impersonal universe. This is a personal universe and God is at work. And you will note that in both passages, Paul in Colossians and in the writer to the Hebrews, as they talk about Jesus sustaining all things, what's the next thing they talk about? His death on the cross. Because Jesus came to redeem his creation. He made the world. It has fallen into sin. And he has come personally to redeem his creation. This is the Christian faith. This is the Christ faith. If we're not careful, we will be like Gideon at least prior to what we see here at the end of chapter 6, that we will say, oh yes, Damon, I agree, God made the world. But then from then on, it's all impersonal. It's all these principles, the laws of thermodynamics, all these laws, that's how things work. And it's not a matter of being a scientist. It affects us when we pray. Because if we think it's all process then I think in some ways we have no confidence. Well, we have less confidence that God can do anything. Because we think he's not doing anything. He's sitting on a chair somewhere because he did all the work and now it's just sort of running on its own. But if we see him at work every moment of every day in all creation, then we can, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, come to him confidently. And we can ask as Gideon did. See, Gideon wasn't quite sure. Wasn't quite sure. Is is this God like Baal? Is it all a matter of tweaking the system? You know? Sort of stimulating and getting things going? Or is God a personal God who is always involved? And Gideon got his answer. And by God's grace, may we see the truth of it. Let's pray together. Our Father, I suspect that we are far more corrupted than we realize in our thinking. We live in a culture that is based in many ways on process. It's a matter of knowing how things work, technique. And so sadly, even when it comes to our relationship with you, if we're not careful, we reduce things to a matter of technique. And we forget that you sent your son as a human being, a person, and he lived among us. And he is, at this moment, sustaining all things. He holds all things together. He is always at work, as you are. And by your grace, may we get a hold of this and and have great confidence in you and trust that you know what you're doing. I thank you for the story of Gideon. May we learn from it and see the truth of it. What is the Christian faith, the Christ faith? That the Lord Jesus, as a person, created the world, he sustains the world, he came to redeem the world, and he is in fact redeeming the world. Help us to think through these things, and again, not be hearers only, but doers as well. Thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's day. We recognize that this is a day set apart but that every other day of the week is yours as well. It's not as though we give you this day and then everything else is ours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. May we never forget that. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today.